Well, good morning, Community Alliance Church. I have been looking forward to seeing you all week long, and I, I think we might have just witnessed a miracle together this morning. Uh, we found a Saturday Night Live uh, sketch that actually agrees 100% with the Bible. <laughs> Didn't think it was possible, but, but really it is. Chris Parnell and Scripture actually both take the same view uh, on money, 100% there. This morning, we're going to be diving back into our follow series, and in this series, we've been talking about habits of the heart that direct our hearts to follow Jesus. And so we've kind of been taking two weeks at a time to look at different habits. We've talked about prayer, we've talked about worship, we've talked about reading the Bible, and last week, we dove really deeply into one line from Jesus' teaching, this line from Matthew chapter 6, where he says this, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we spent some time talking about our treasure and our money, but what we really learned then was that our money is not a big deal. What really is the big deal is the hold that our money has on our heart and how our money directs where our heart goes. And this is what we said about it. We said, look, your treasure is the director of your heart. If you, if you want to know where your heart is, then you need to know where your money is going. And more than that, your treasure actually tells your heart where to go. So if you're concerned about where your heart is going to go, where your priorities are, then you've got to begin to direct your money where to go because your treasure is the director of your heart, and where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Now this week we're going to dive back in and we're going to look a little bit more what Scripture says about this topic. But before we do that, I want to say something that might surprise you a little bit as we continue on in this follow series. This book right here, the Bible, did you know it won't tell you specifically what you should do in every area of your life. It, it doesn't. For, for instance, uh, it gives a lot of information about what kind of person you should marry, but for me, it didn't tell me that Trisha Handy was the girl for me to marry. The word Trisha isn't even in the Bible. It, it, it won't tell you really uh, what you should do. It should tell you that uh, you should take care of the body that God has given you, but it won't tell you how to lose weight. Uh, Jesus' diet of 40 days in the desert starving yourself is not a diet plan. High school students, this book won't tell you what college you should go to. Uh, If you're thinking about switching careers, it won't tell you if you should switch careers. Unless you're a bank robber, then you should switch careers. It will tell you that. But what the Bible actually does is it really gives a lot of general wisdom that then through prayer and through guidance through the Holy Spirit, we take and we apply to our lives. Now, there's one exception, I think, to what I'm telling you. And that's when it comes to the area of money. When it comes to the area of our money, of our resources, our possessions, the Bible actually does dive down into the nitty-gritty of what we should do in our lives. Did you know that there are over 2,000 verses in Scripture that talk about money? If we took 20 verses a week, which is a lot, but we took 20 verses a week and talked about them in sermon after sermon, Sunday after Sunday, that would be two years' worth of sermons talking about money. Now, we're, we're not going to do that. You can feel relieved by that. But today what we are going to do is we're going to do sort of a crash course on what Scripture teaches us about how we should direct our treasures. Because remember, the important thing is our treasures tell us where our heart is going, and our treasures tell our heart where to go. So if we're concerned about where our heart is going, we need to look at what this book says about how we direct our finances. Now, when we look at our crash course, sort of our express lane view or checkout view of Scripture, we find that in Scripture there are five things, really, that we can do when it comes to our money. We can gain it, we can spend it, we can owe it, 
we can save it, and we can give it. And as we dive in this morning, I want to invite you, if you had a bulletin, you can pull out one of the bulletin inserts. There's some sermon notes, a handout that you can use as we make our way along through there. If you're online viewing with us, I want to encourage you, you can go to butlercac.org resources. We make this available in a PDF. You can download to your phone or on a computer screen and follow along. This will help you. And then what we're going to do today is we're going to look at each of the five possibilities. Then I'm going to give you a word that kind of summarizes what Scripture teaches about it a few passages that might kind of grab the big picture of what Scripture says, and then a principle that we can apply to our lives. So you ready to get started? The, the first thing that we can do when, we, when it comes to our money in our lives is we can gain it. And if we take an all-encompassing view of Scripture, we will see that the Bible really says when you gain it, you want to gain it fairly. You want to gain it fairly. Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us this. Might, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Here's the principle. God made us to produce wealth. God made us to produce wealth. Now, pay close attention as I explain this because I don't want you to misunderstand. The word wealth that we have in our language today has really come to mean an abundance of possessions, an abundance of money, and an abundance of resources. But the word wealth actually comes from an old English word from about 900 years ago that was just spelled W-E-L, well. And the word that it stems from doesn't mean an abundance of resources. Really what it means is well-being, well-being. And this principle is teaching us that God has given us the abilities that we need in our lives to pursue well-being. Here's how this works. God made us to need things. Our bodies need food several times a day in order to have energy to live. We need to have clothing to keep us warm and protected from things in the environments around us. We need to have shelter over our heads to take care of us and protect us from weather and wild animals. And God has also given us abilities. He has given a diversity of abilities. I've gotten to know a lot, a lot of the people here in, in this room. And for some people, he's just given you incredible strength and stamina. And you can work a hard, laborious job all day long. God's given you that ability. I, I know some people in our church that actually have the ability. They can take a 175,000-pound airplane going at over 500 miles an hour from 30,000 feet and gracefully landed on a runway. God's given them that ability. There are people in our church who can go to Aldi's and buy ingredients that all the rest of us can buy, yet somehow magically whip up food that just makes your knees go weak, right? Some of you have the ability to go and spend time with five-year-olds and teach them complicated things in a way that they can understand without losing your own mind. It's true. And God has given us those abilities in our lives. And he said, I want to give you this ability so that you can use it to provide for well-being in your life. Taking the strength and the ability that God has given you to be able to get the things you need to survive. And scripture is saying, one, don't forget who gave you that ability. And two, use it in a way that honors the one who gave you that ability. Don't cheat the system. Don't rip off your employer. 
Give an honest day's work. Now, now I want to clarify something. Providing well-being, gaining well-being fairly, does not only mean going and earning a monetary paycheck. In our culture, unfortunately, well-being or gaining wealth or gaining uh, well-being fairly has become really going to work and getting money in the form of a paycheck. But whenever Moses was writing this, he was writing it to a culture that lived long ago. They were actually an agricultural society. There were no such things as W-2s or direct deposit. In their culture, everyone in the household had to work in order to survive. People had to make clothing and cook food and harvest crops and build buildings, young and old, men and women, boys and girls, everyone was expected to contribute. And in our culture, we've kind of made it more valuable those who go to a workplace to provide well-being than those who don't go to a workplace and provide it else other ways with their abilities. And I just want to say, if God's called you to, to go into the workplace to provide well-being for your family, then, then follow that calling. And if God's called you to stay at home and, and use your gifts there to provide well-being for your family, use those abilities there. And every family has to figure out how they're going to do that in God's, with, in God's plan. But he's saying, use those abilities. Now here's the other thing. In, in our culture... Sometimes what happens is those who are able to provide less or have the ability to do less can be considered lesser than. And really, in Scripture, in fact, in this very book that, that we're referencing here, God reminds us, look, there are going to be differences in our society. In fact, Moses says it this way. He says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The principle behind this is that there are differences in ability, and yet God has called us to be open-handed and open-hearted, not judgmental and looking down, but instead of looking at others, looking at yourself and saying, are you using the abilities that God has given you? So if you're going to the workplace, are you working hard every day? And if you're not going to the workplace, maybe you're retired, maybe you're physically unable, are you still doing things in your life to provide well-being, maybe for yourself, as well as for other people. Leveraging your opportunities, maybe in ways that don't necessarily show up in a bank balance, that can show up in a difference in another person's life. Here's the second thing. We spend money, we go and take the money that we get, and we trade it in for the things that we need. We spend it. So if you're going to spend money, you need to spend it wisely. Spend it wisely. That's number two. Here's what Proverbs Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe there's a secret society problem that I don't, I'm not aware of, but most people I don't know don't have a problem slurping down lots of olive oil. Uh, nobody that I know says, you know what, whether it's Bertelli's brand or Benelli's or Great Value, you know, as soon as I get that jug of olive oil, I'm just chugging it. It's gone in a day, two days tops, Right? fact, I got to, th- what would that do to your digestive system if you just chugged? I don't know what these people did back then. But there's another translation. The good news translation actually is a little bit more direct, but I, I think it helps us to understand a little bit better what this is saying. The good news translation says it this way, wise people live in wealth and luxury, but excuse my language, stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. And that stings for me a little bit because there's been some times when I've been stupid people. Here's the principle behind it. Don't outspend your income. Don't outspend your income. 
In other words, don't buy stuff you can't afford. Your income is a number and your spending is a number and keep this number bigger than the spending number. And the truth is we've all had our stories, plural, of when we've been stupid people when it comes to our spending. There's lots of reasons that people might spend too much money. Sometimes it could be a sin issue in their heart, maybe some greed, maybe some impatience, right? There, there, there could be some psychological reasons like fear of missing out or, or maybe prioritizing today over tomorrow. But really, actually, in a 2019 study by U.S. News & World Report, I found it fascinating. They said that the number one reason that people outspend their income is that people just don't know they spend too much because they don't know how much they spend. They just don't know how much they spend. Some of it really is will for ignorance. We, we might know that we're spending too much, but we don't take the time to figure out how much is too much because we know the news is bad, so we just kind of ignore it. For, for others, it, it's become really easy, right? Like, if you're going to go spend $150 on a dinner or a dollar on a pack of gum, the motion is kind of the same, right? It's just that swipe. It can just be too easy to let it go out the door. For, for some, you just haven't really gotten that, that process of organizing to say, okay, how much am I spending? But, but there's some good news behind this. If really the problem for many people in overspending is just not knowing how much they spend, then that can be in many ways solved by planning what you will spend, or I'm going to use that B word, budget, right? Financial guru Dave Ramsey puts it this way. He says a budget, a budget is telling your money where to go rather than wondering where it went. It's telling your money where to go, planning in advance rather than trying to look back and say, what, what happened? Now, I've talked to people about this idea before, and you get a lot of reasons people don't want to budget. So, some people say, well, you know, I just kind of keep track in my head. I just kind of know how, where my money's going, and I don't need to see it on paper. I just sort of know. And I would say, you know, would you believe that I'm a good parent if I told you I'm just, I just kind of know where my kids are? Like, I, don't, I couldn't find them right now. But if I had to, right, I could figure it out. Uh, other people would say, I, I just don't have enough money to budget. And that's kind of, in, in a sense, a little bit like a malnourished person saying, well, you know what, I don't have enough food to worry about getting some food. In fact, no matter where you're at in your financial picture, a budget is going to help you to be, do a better job of not outspending your income. Maybe you would just say, no one's ever showed me how. At the end of this message, I'm going to give you a couple resources or point you in a direction that will give you a way to learn how to do this. Now, the number three thing that we can do with our money is we can owe it. Scripture says, if you're going to owe money, you better do it cautiously. If you're going to owe money, you better do it extremely cautiously. Proverbs 22 tells us this, Do not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. Putting up security for debts is basically like saying, hey, if this, I am on the hook for this, for this amount of money that's, that's borrowed. I've got to pay this back. If, if that's you, if you lack the means to pay, well, your very bed will be snatched out from under you. Now, I want to tell you, if you're thinking, does the Bible prohibit borrowing money? Does the Bible prohibit debt? There's no passage that says, thou shalt not debteth. But I will say, where it doesn't give an explicit prohibition, there's an extremely strong encouragement to borrow money with inhibition. 
Be very careful when doing this. Because here's the principle, debt, debt decreases your choices and increases your concerns. Debt decreases your choices and increases your concerns. Here, here's how the principle goes. It says, if you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from, out from under you. Now, this isn't saying that if you hear a knock on the door, it might be a mattress firm coming to repo your mattress. In fact, it's a bigger problem than that. He's saying, look, if you get yourself into debt, and many know this, well, it's going to be like trying to sleep without a mattress. Your rest, your peace of mind is going to be like trying to rest on a cold, hard floor. And for many in our culture, this has become the daily reality. In fact, the Ramsey Solution Group did some studies very recently in 2020 on the state of debt in America, and this is what they found. They found that debt is a multi-generational problem. Whether you're a baby boomer, like 1946 through 64, whether you're Gen X, like 1965 through 1980, or a millennial, 81 through 99, we all have consumer debt. Consumer debt is non-mortgage debt, so credit cards, student loans, cars. One commentator on this said, well, you know, it's scary. Millennials have as much debt as Generation X, and Generation X has had a lot more time to accumulate it, and that might be true, but I'm kind of a Millennial I'm right on the cusp, so I'm going to stick up for you, my millennial friends and say, yeah, but you Generation Xers, you've had way more time to pay it off, and how's that going for you? Now, here's the other thing. Some people might say, look, if I just had more money, if I made more money, I'd have less debt. They found something pretty interesting. Debt affects everybody, no matter what you make, but this was the interesting thing. The more money you actually make, the more debt you seem to have. Those making over $75,000 had anywhere from 25 to 35% more debt than those making $50,000 or less. Making more money is not the answer to dealing with debt. Now, here's the problem. Debt affects your life. It steals the mattress out from under you. In fact, those who had over $50,000 of consumer debt were more than twice as likely to worry every single day about their debt than those who owed less than $10,000. Here's how I describe it. When you borrow money, you might have heard of something called APR, annual percentage rate. It's the interest rate you pay on your money. And I would say when it comes to borrowing money, Scripture will tell you there's not just APR, you've got to consider EPR, the emotional pain rate of borrowing money. The rich rule over the lender and the borrower is slave to the lender. Rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender, Proverbs 22 says, it nails it right on the head. So there's an emotional pain rate when it comes to money. There's a, there's a, a pain that you have that comes along with what you borrow. It's the wondering, my boss wants to meet with me, is he going to let me go? If that happens, I'll have to foreclose on the house. It's the how am I going to tell my spouse about the credit card debt and hiding that secret. It's the thinking, if I don't close this deal, we might lose the car. It's a burden that hangs over you because the borrow becomes slave to the lender. Now here's the thing, I, I just want to say to you, I, I bring this out from Scripture not because I want to put a judgment on anyone here today who is like dealing with debt and you would say, I just feel overwhelmed by this. If you're struggling with debt, 
the enemy wants you to feel trapped. He's the one that wants you to feel like you're in bondage because if you're a slave to fear, if you're a slave to worry, well, then he knows that you'll never be able to be generous. You'll never be able to have more time to serve God. You'll never feel worthy. You'll feel like you've just made a bunch of mistakes in your life. I want to give you hope. I want to give you hope. There is a path out. It won't be easy. It'll be very hard. I heard somebody say one time, being rich is hard and being broke is hard. Which hard would you prefer? It will be hard to get out of debt. It might mean stopping borrowing, selling some stuff that you have that you can get rid of, making some sacrifices and getting help. But if that's you today, you say, I feel like I'm just a slave to debt. I don't want to live that way anymore. At the end of this message, I'm going to tell you uh, about an opportunity that we're going to be offering here at our church that can help you out. The fourth thing you can do with your money is you can save it diligently. You can save it. You can save it diligently. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. Here's the principle. God gives you now what you need later. God gives you now what you need later. This reminds me, this, this idea of the ant. A few years ago for their birthday, my boys got, it, it's called an ant or an insect vacuum. It's like a little, little toy that has a vacuum hose, and you can suck up insects right off the ground so it puts them in this little container so that little boys can, well, can harass them, right? <laughs> and so what my, my boys didn't know was that I pay an exterminator, exterminator every spring to come out to my house and spray so there will be no insects to harass me. What I didn't know was that my boys had taken matters into their own hands and they were taking food from the house and putting it in strategic locations all around our driveway. And you all, you know what happened, right? Uh, if you ever need to call an emergency meeting of every ant within a quarter mile radius, I recommend Pepperidge Farm Goldfish. Not the extra cheesy kind, the plain kind, a little bit of water, it works great. So anyhow, we have all these ants coming at these places in our driveway, and what I would consider a real pain in the butt, Solomon says, hey, this is an object lesson. Think about those ants. Watch what they're doing. Those ants aren't coming out saying, okay, I'm going to get a little bit for day, and I'm just going to go back and take it easy the rest of the day, because I know that Easton and Ashton, they're going to come out, they're going to drop some more goldfish tomorrow. They're saying, these kids' dad's going to find out about this any time now we got to get as much as we can while we can. So not only were they coming out and eating some to fill their bellies, they were carrying back to the nest pieces of goldfish to save for later. Solomon says, consider the ant, you sluggard. Learn something. Actually, I did learn something about ants. This is a fun ant, fa ant fact. There are fun ant facts, and you can be the smartest one at the party you're going to later. Fun ant fact. Did you know that ants actually have two stomachs? They have two stomachs. I was thinking... How great would that be if you had two stomachs? It's like, do I want Italian or barbecue tonight? I'll have both. There's probably a very good reason that God did not give us two stomachs. But there's a very good reason that God did give ants two stomachs. The ants have two stomachs because with one stomach, they take in food to consume to give them energy for the moment. But in the other stomach, 
They've taken food to save for later. And so with every bite, with every morsel that comes into their body, it gets divided up, some for now, some for later, because God gives them what they need today for later on. And that's the principle Solomon's teaching here, even though he probably didn't know the biology behind ants this specifically. He's saying, God's going to give you now what you're going to need for later, so save, save it. Save it. Ants didn't have a calendar to tell them when winter was coming, but we do. But even though we know when the season of winter is coming, we don't know when the winter of life might be coming. We don't know when a health event might be around the corner. We don't know when a layoff might be around the corner. A pandemic could be around the corner. But the principle is God's giving you what you're going to need later, right now. So you need to diligently save some of it. Now, now here's my pitch. Uh, we're going to skip the next slide. Here's my pitch to those in here who are either in high school or maybe you're in college, you're going to be starting your out. I want to tell you about something called the 40-40-40 principle. This is the 40-10-10-40 um, principle. Now, here's the thing. If you get out of college or you get out of high school and you start working and you make $40,000 a year, that is well below the average salary for a person starting out in their career, but we're going to be conservative, $40,000 a year, and you make the really, really tough decision. Now, this is going to be the hardest part of this. You're going to say, I'm going to take 10% of what I make, 10%. It'll be a one-time decision you make, and then you'll learn to live without it, but that first decision is hard. But you say, I'm going to take 10% of what I make, and I'm going to put it into some kind of 401k, an IRA, some kind of no-load index fund that just sort of earns the, the rate that the stock market earns. And, and, and we'll say it earns 10%, which again is below the 40-year average, but we're going to be conservative. And then, and then you get a modest 2% increase in your pay every year, and you do this for 40 years, for 40 years. By the time you're 60, 62, you will have saved up $190,000. Now, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to give up. You could buy a lot of things with $90,000. But if you disciplined and diligently save this way, here's what will happen. The 40-10-10-40 principle will turn that money over 40 years into $2 million. Because God gives you now what you're going to need for later, and he gives you wisdom to do things with it that will even expand what you can do with it later. Imagine what you can do for God in your 60s if you had $2 million. Imagine how generous you could be. Imagine the people in your life you'd be able to take care of. There's EPR when it comes to debt, emotional pain rate, but I think there's an EPY as well when it comes to saving. When you're calculating savings financially, you think APY, which is annual percentage yield, but EPY is the same. It's extra peace yield. When you save diligently, God gives you extra peace in your life. Now, the person who's written most of the scripture that we've studied today was Solomon. And, and, and Solomon was one of the wisest people who ever lived. And he was also one of the richest people who ever lived. And he also wrote another book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. No one is really sure when Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but they think it's toward the end of his life when he began to reflect back on all of this wealth in his life he had accumulated. And as we go to the fifth thing that we do with our money, I want to look at Ecclesiastes and kind of get Solomon's after-action report on his financial life. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He says, As I look back on life, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. He said, I've learned that no matter how much you make, you're always going to wish that you made a little bit more. 
He continues, he says, as good goods increase, so do those who consume them. In other words, the more you have, the more others are going, going to want a piece of it. The IRS, lenders, friends. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? It says you can't even use all the stuff you accumulate. It says you fill up attics and garages and basements and storage facilities with stuff that you never even use. It gets even worse. As for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Then he says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded, hoarded to the harm of its owners. In other words, the more money you have, the more power you have to make really bad decisions that can hurt you in your life. And even if you're not making bad decisions, he notices this. He says, wealth is lost through some misfortune. Saving might prepare you, but it can't protect you from everything that can happen in life. It doesn't protect you from a, a diagnosis. It doesn't protect you from your children going in a wrong direction. It doesn't protect you from losing a loved one. And everything you save could be lost. Now, Solomon then gives us a principle we can't deny that leads to a choice that we can decide. He says, here is the good news about all of this. Are you ready? Verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. You're thinking, that's good news? Who spit in Solomon's cereal that day? Here's the idea that he's trying to communicate. Let me communicate it this way. Uh, going back to creatures around my house, um, I've noticed that it seems like every cottontail rabbit in the Butler County is moving to my neighborhood. I don't know if you've had this experience. I think the taxes are lower than Allegheny County, so they're just moving north. The problem with all these rabbits I'm seeing around my yard is that they like to eat. They like to eat plants and flowers, my plants and flowers that I spent my money on to put around my yard. So I got to thinking, you know where there's lots of plants and flowers? Five miles north of my house in the promised land of Slippery Rock Township. So because I'm a nice guy and I really care about the rabbits and their diet, I bought one of those have a heart box traps and, and I, I caught a rabbit. I got it in there, loaded it up into the car and I drove out into the, the countryside with all kinds of edibles for rabbits Got that box trap down there, and I'm like, okay, Mr. Rabbit, this is your lucky day. I opened up the door of the box trap, and I waited. And the rabbit didn't do anything. It just sat there looking at me, terrified. Eventually, I got frustrated enough that what I had to do is I had to kick that trap pretty hard to get Mr. Cottontail Rabbit to run out the door. And that's what Solomon's saying here. He says, look, you can live your life in a trap of materialism. You can live your life trapped thinking that this is the only way to do it. And maybe you even connected with some of what he said. Maybe you're the one that's sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, when I made a quarter, when I made a half of what I make now, I, I still thought if I just made a little bit more, my problems will be solved. But now I realize I look back, I have more stuff, but it hasn't made me any happier. Or, or maybe you're paying a really high emotional pain rate you know, you're, you're just in that bondage to debt and, and you feel like people are coming after it and you're, you're trying to figure out how do I keep what I have? How do I get what I don't have? 
You feel like you're in that trap, or maybe you're like Solomon. You've had the wealth, and you've had the emptiness that comes with it. Solomon's saying it's so easy to live in that trap, but here's the door. Sometimes it takes a hard shake to get out of it. Here's the hard shake. He says, we take nothing from our toil with us when we leave this world that we can carry in our hands. In other words, he's saying your wealth, your wealth can either be ripped from your hands one day, or there's an alternative. You can choose to release it. Here's the principle. Number five, we can give money, so give it generously. Give it generously. Here's what scripture says, Proverbs 11. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. One person opens their hands and releases it, yet they gain even more back and freedom. Another person withholds unduly, meaning they keep far more, they grip it tightly, but they come to poverty when in the end it's just ripped from their hands. A generous person will prosper and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Here's the principle, giving, or generosity is choosing giving over confiscation. Generosity is choosing giving over confiscation. Generosity is saying that in the end, I'm going to have to give it all up. So I'm going to choose to give away as much as I can now. Generosity is the freedom of using what has been entrusted to you for eternal purposes rather than gripping onto it till the very, very end. Generous, generosity is the life that God calls us to. And here's what I think. I think the reason that God tells us so much about how to gain it and, and spend it and borrow it and save it is because in the end, all of those things impact our ability to give it generously. Now, anytime I talk about this, uh, there are a few questions that always come up. There's so much that Scripture can say, but I, as we conclude, I just want to maybe address the two questions that I always get. One is, okay, if I choose to be generous, where should I direct my generosity? And behind that, let's just be honest, there's some suspicion usually. I mean, one, you know, I'm a pastor and I work at a church, so people usually think, well, if they're talking about generosity, the church must be hurting for money. Or, of course, you're a pastor, you're going to say to direct generosity to the local church. So I just want to share, the truth is, our, our, we're thankfully not hurting for money here at our church. In fact, today's the first year, of, first day of our, our new budget year, so it's actually a good time to maybe look back and say, okay, this is what God has done in our church over the past 12 months. If we look back over the past 12 months, we have, for our ministry expenses, our sort of our home turf stuff we do, our church, you, ha- have given about $2.25 million. And so be, on behalf of leadership and, and really on behalf of everyone whose life has been changed because of giving, I just want to say thank you you have given generously. Our church leadership, our staff, our teams, they have taken that, and we've spent about $2.1 million of it on ministry. We didn't spend all we had to spend. We spent what we needed to spend. We didn't outspend our income. And so that leaves a little bit of extra. 
and our elders and our leadership in the coming months will be deciding what to do with that. But typically what happens when we have extra is some of it may be directed to some, some ministry organizations we partner with or, or maybe some missions work that's taking place overseas or sometimes we'll take it and we'll try to get ahead of the game on some facility or technology needs so we don't wind up in an emergency situation on something like a roof. And our leaders will be deciding that. And for the coming year, I want to let you know that they've planned a ministry budget that's very well in line with what we've received in the past 12 months. In the coming year, we're planning to spend somewhere around $2.3 million. That's our, our ministry budget for the coming year. And, and that represents a heavy investment into a lot of things we're going to be doing in the community to accomplish that vision, uh, a, a big investment into some discipleship opportunities we have among our congregation, c- caring for our staff as the congr- cost of living increases. That's what our financial picture looks like. So I just want to say thank you for how you've been generous to this church, that I don't have to stand up on this Sunday morning and say, I better give a great giving message because we're really hurting. God has been faithful and you've been generous, so thank you. Now here's the second, the second thing I usually hear, okay? Well, you're a pastor. Of course you think I should be generous toward the church. Well, I want to answer that in two ways. One is I think you should be generous in all areas of your life, the church being one of them. But yes, absolutely. If you, are, if you are part of this church, if you call Community Alliance Church your church home, your kids attend here, they're going to youth groups, you're being fed here, then I think it's not only biblical, but it's worth it to be generous here. And I ask you, why would you ever give to a church where one of the pastors would stand up and say, you know what, I don't think you should give here, it's just not worth it. Why, why would you go to a church where you didn't think it was worth it, where you didn't think what they're doing was worth your generosity. I mean, think about it. Like, Mike Tomlin's not going to come out and say, hey, look, we're just not looking too good this year. That offensive line, we're trying to rebuild. This is not the year to buy tickets, okay? Or what? School's starting. If your superintendent wrote a letter and said, listen, we've had a lot of changes, and the school district next door is just better than us, I just wanted to let you know. It is worth it. I see the lives that get changed on a daily basis because of generosity. And as one of the pastors of this church, I absolutely think it's worth being generous here, as well as in other places that God calls you to be. Now, the second question I get is, all right, well then, how much do I have to give? There's a better question I'm going to tell you in a moment. But really, the question comes back to, Okay, what's the appropriate amount? There's two biblical answers to this. One takes more of an Old Testament view of what God instructed the Israelites to do in the Old Testament, which was to give a tenth or 10% of what came in, which to them was typically crops and animals. Please do not bring corn and goats. That would be really, really hard to account for. And so some throughout the course of church history have said 10% is a good model to follow. I'll tell you, that's what my wife and I have said. That's our starting point. That's where we're going to begin because it's just easy to know where you're at. Others, though, have said, look, the New Testament teaches more of a grace-based or a free will-based or a generous-based model, which basically says, hey, after Jesus came, things changed. Uh, We were living in an age of grace, and so really giving is between what God is telling you in your heart to give and you following that leading of the Holy Spirit. There have been people who love Jesus who have landed on both sides of that issue. 
Here's what I'll say. They both have their pros and they both have their cons. There have been some who've said, have used the tithe base to give less than what God has called them to do. And, and, and there's some who've used the more generosity base to say, yep, I'm going to give less than what God has called you to do. At the end of the day, though, it's a matter for you to get before God and say, how do you want me to give? But when you do that, there's a better question I think that you can ask. Not how much do I have to give, how much can I give? How much can I give? For some folks here, this is a question that you need to sit down with a calculator to answer. You need to figure that out. Do some math, figure out what can change. Some prayer and say, God, how much can I give? Mathematically, where am I at? For others, you might say, I have no idea what kind of financial position I'm in. I could really use some help. I'm so excited to tell you about a class that we're going to be offering here this fall. It's called Financial Peace University. Financial Peace University. We have a lot of people in our church who have gone through this. It's made a huge difference in their life and in their finances. If you're interested, you can sign up at butlercac.org FPU. We'll get you on the list, and when we have more details, we will get that out to you. There's also an insert in your bulletin. You can find out more about that class that's coming up. For others of us, though, this question really doesn't come down to a calculator or a class. It comes down to a cross. See, God calls us not to give in light of what we have. Really, he calls us to give in light of what he has given to view Christ as the ultimate giver, the ultimate generous one. Say, in light of what have you given me, Christ, how can I invest back in what you're doing in this kingdom? How can I gain money so fairly that, that people are going to look at me and say, if that's how a Christian lives their life, I, I want that. How, how can I spend money so wisely that with every purchase, I'm really asking, what's the kingdom end in this? How, how can I borrow our own money so cautiously that I say with every decision, God, protect me, let me not make a decision that's going to impact my ability to give to your kingdom. How, how can I save money so that one day I'll be able to know that, that my well-being is taken care of and I'll be able to just have money, God, that I can give and, and use at your prompting. As needs arise, I'll be able to help people. I'll be able to help the church. I'll be able to help ministries. In light of all that Christ has done for us, how do you answer this question, how much can I give? That's a question that you have to answer before God in light of the cross where he answered the question of how much could he give for us. Let me pray for you and we'll let you go. God in heaven, we come before you. Every decision we make in our everyday lives, as practical as it is, really should be driven by what you've done for us and, and looking at your cross and saying, in light of that, how do you want me to live? God, I pray that you will lay on the heart of our church family how you want us to not just live, but how you want us to give. You have been so overwhelmingly generous towards us. Father God, I pray that you will allow us to be so overwhelmingly generous towards you and to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here to worship with us and spending your time here this morning. Have a wonderful week. We will see you next Sunday.